Hello and welcome back to State of Mind with me, Grace Kingswell. Wow, what a week it's been. Thank you to everyone that's tagged me in their Instagram stories having listened to last week's episode on fats and the problem with plant milks with Kate Mitzi as my guest. So far this series, I've thrown shade on everyone's favourite morning bowl of porridge and their oat milk lattes, and next week it's all about gluten. So I can only say that I'm hashtag sorry, not sorry. Today, my guest Alex Manos and I are talking about a very important topic in nutritional therapy and functional medicine, mould and mycotoxins. This might be new terminology for you, but don't switch off. Mold allergy or mycotoxicosis is increasingly becoming one of the biggest players in the chronic health game. When you've tried everything from gut work to hormonal treatment to dietary changes and looking at stress and lifestyle and you still have no answers, then it's worth thinking about whether you've ever lived in a water damaged property because mycotoxins could be causing you a significant problem. We also potentially exacerbate the issue with contaminated foods too coffee, peanuts, grains and dried fruit being just some of the culprits. When Alex lists the associated symptoms with mould illness and mycotoxins, I think you'll be shocked at how relatable they are to you. So do keep listening and if you want to discuss any of the topics covered in this episode, then don't hesitate to get in touch. The sponsor of this episode couldn't be more perfect because it's Exhale. Exhale is coffee, which is free from mycotoxins, heavy metals and pesticides. But I'm going to tell you more about that later and give you a discount code to try some for yourself. For now, let's get on with the episode. Welcome back, Alex Manos, to State of Mind. It's great to have you back again. Thank you. It's great to be back. This time we are doing less of a kind of let's talk about you, Alex, although obviously I would love to chat for hours, and more of a deep dive into um, a topic that I know you are incredibly passionate about, um, mould and mycotoxins. I want to start the podcast by just introing this to my listeners, who I think although we're all really interested in health and wellness and nutrition, maybe haven't um, come across this issue of of mould yet. Um, for, for lots of people, they might be sitting here thinking about the mould that maybe grows outdoors or the mould that you see when you leave your food out of the fridge and not necessarily about the... Um, the allergy to mold that we can have within our bodies and that, that then causes health concerns. So what is this issue with mold and mycotoxins? <sighs> Big question. Good question. Yeah, I guess starting to or starting by making a difference between the two, because I think there's a lot of confusion there straight away, ultimately. So the idea that from a slightly more traditional perspective, perhaps there's um, the mold spore element of things, and that often will contribute to allergies um, and sometimes immune hypersensitivity type disorders. But what's less well known, I think, is the concept of what some might refer to as mycotoxicosis or mycotoxin issues. And mycotoxins are kind of like the defense mechanism of mold. So they're volatile compounds. They don't smell. They're so tiny. Obviously, you're not going to see them floating around in the air. We're breathing them in. There's some people who think they're absorbed through our skin. And they are also lipophilic, meaning they're fat-loving. And they can actually get stored 
in our fat. So whether that's body fat or whether it's the cell membrane or the mitochondrial membrane, all those kind of fatty layers or tissues are ways of essentially sequestering these mycotoxins. Hmm. So we've kind of got mold spore-based issues and we've got mycotoxin issues. And I think certainly in our world, when we're dealing with people with chronic fatigue syndrome and a lot of these complex chronic conditions, uh, a subset of them appear to have been exposed to mold in a water-damaged property, whether that's related to something like a water leak um, or just general dampness, poor ventilation and things like this. Um, and then they're being exposed to these mycotoxins. And what's really interesting about this is because these mycotoxins are like the weapons of the molds, they're producing them whenever they feel threatened. So it's almost like there's this colonial warfare going on between different molds and um, ecosystems. And we are some of the collateral damage of this environmental war going on. And it's such a crazy thing to think about. Um, but ultimately, that's what we're seeing. So molds, certainly some molds, will become more toxic and more problematic um, the more threatened their environment and their community is, which on a slightly different topic is why we have to be really careful about how we clean and remediate our properties. Because if we're going in there just with our bleach, thinking that we're doing good, actually that could be compounding the situation. Mm, that's what I was going to ask you, actually, as you were talking, saying, well, how do we then get rid of... So supposing you live in a, in a water-damaged property or you can even, God forbid, see visible mould, um, like actually many of us that live in Cornwall can. You know, when you move to Cornwall, like I have done, the first people ask is, oh, have you got a dehumidifier yet? <laughs> um, because the houses here are incredibly damp. So so if I understand correctly, you're saying if you can see visible mould in your property and you spray some normal house cleaning sprays um, and kind of get in there with products, you could be doing more harm than good. You can be, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I was working with a client or seeing a client just a couple of weeks ago who um, who did that and actually noticed how much worse they felt afterwards. And they did like this huge... Um, self-cleanse, so to speak, of their property, including furniture. Because bear in mind, these mycotoxins are floating around, they then settle, and they're in the carpets, they're in our clothes, they're in the furniture. And that's unfortunately when this conversation goes, quite frankly, quite depressing, because mm. it can be just, it can be so entrenched in that property that you're limited in, in what you can do. And I've always been someone who's pretty conservative about these things. I really don't want to be an extremist um, practitioner kind of saying things that might sound just extreme ultimately but I've now had clients where actually the thing that's led to the next stage of their healing is replacing the mattress or getting rid of the couch or some one client who had to get rid of the headboard of their bed because mm. uh, they finally noticed that actually that's where the smell was coming from but mm. bear in mind we've already said that you don't always need the smell so it's a really tricky conversation to be having with clients in regards to what you do from a property perspective mm. because as I'm sure people have said on the podcast before grace you know this idea of you can't get well in the environment you got sick in and mold is kind of the perfect example of of that ultimately yeah. so what are um some of the symptoms or you know the, the sort of mold or mycotoxin picture i i know that it's really vast but i guess what i want to give people listening is perhaps something to hold on to and, and a reason as to why this conversation about mycotoxicosis is so important 
Mm. Um, I'll, I'll give two answers. One's a little bit tongue in cheek, which is like anything. <laughs> um, and that's the same for so many things. You know, you could you could have a long list of symptoms associated with with SIBO or, or whatever it may be. Um, so it can be skin-based stuff. It can be related to detox. So it can be things like chemical sensitivity syndrome. Um, it can obviously be cognitive stuff like depression, anxiety, brain fog. It can definitely be gastric. So it can be IBS type symptoms. Um, it can be related to kidney dysfunction. If you see that in bloods, for example, that someone's done. Um, but to answer this in a slightly more helpful way, You've got Dr. Neil Nathan, who's one of the leading kind of practitioners slash researchers in this area. He's got a couple of great books out there. Um, and he will talk about some unique um, sort of mold or mycotoxin symptoms. One of them is um, ice pick pains, as he describes them. So I guess, you know, these sh uh, sort of short, very sharp, intense pains that we can feel. Hmm. Um, Anywhere in our bodies? I believe so. As far as I can remember, I'm not sure there are specific body sites. Mm. Um, and That's Dr. So Krista, yeah, it's a really interesting. I have to say, I don't think I've had a client yet with that. I have um, that. And I've just ah, done a mycotoxin test, but I'm waiting for the results. Interesting. So that's really interesting. I sometimes just have like a very random, very scary, sharp pain for like a few seconds. And I'll go, ah, what was that? Like, I must be dying. And then it goes away. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so we'll have to do part two when you've got your results, maybe. I know, I'm dreading um, them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and electric shocks is another one from Dr. Neil Nathan. Um, so maybe there's some sort of issue it's having on our kind of electrical field, as it were. Um, and then Dr. Krista talks about inner, inner anxiety. No, she actually de deliberately doesn't use the word anxiety, but anxious. Like mm. there's just very low level generalized anxiousness where someone feels they don't feel safe they feel restless so they and then that can then lead to things like insomnia um it can lead to kind of hypervigilance mm -hmm. and she uses this idea of in a lot of her clients uh it can have an impact on on behavioral elements and environmental control so it might be an example she's given on a podcast before is clients who are financially safe who are constantly worried about not having enough so they're constantly saving not spending and she's associated those sorts of um, behaviors with this idea of essentially not feeling safe when you do have a mycotoxin burden because of mm -hmm. the impact it's having on the brain and the nervous system so obviously um, mold mycotoxins especially mold they like warm moist environments so the sinuses, the digestive tracts, the respiratory tract, these are kind of some of the main body sites where these mycotoxins and certainly mould, if the mould does colonise us, are going to set up shop. Mm. Um, and certainly if you think about the sinuses, there is a very easy passageway into the central nervous system. So some of these toxins is thought essentially penetrate, and we know they do, they penetrate the blood-brain barrier, enter the brain, and then that's how they can have an impact on some of these more uh, neural symptoms as well. Mm. So not all, not all mould, sorry, is the bad type of mould though, right? It's not all mould is going to produce yeah. these toxic mycotoxins. And because, I think... Oh, sorry, actually, sorry. I was, I was just going to say because... Presumably people must, you know, we've been living with mould for centuries and centuries. You know, our ancestors that would have lived in 
probably much more water damaged buildings than we currently live in. So why is it that now, you know, is it that systemically we are, our defences are just so much worse these days. We carry a much heavier toxic burden day to day. You know, we are much more stressed. We are living out of tune with nature. Like, is all of that part and parcel as to why it's becoming such an issue now? Mm. It's a really good question. I think my opinion is absolutely. So we know in the research that the most important variable in all of this is like the dose of exposure. Mm. Um, And obviously, especially in new builds where ventilation is so poor, there is this kind of there is this, I guess, heightened exposure when there is kind of dampness or mould in the property. There's no ventilation. Um, the houses are so well insulated. That's actually becoming one of the problems with kind of new builds. Mm. So people go into them thinking they're safe from mould because it's a new property. But actually, for other reasons, it's just as problematic, um, potentially. So I think, you know, there's this idea of we're being exposed to higher levels compared to when we lived certainly a while back. Um, in huts or things like this, where obviously there was just great ventilation. But my yeah. view on on anything these days is health and disease are accumulative. You know, I don't think it's necessary that one thing has triggered symptoms. And I think one of the problems we have with mold and mycotoxins is it's very easy to think that the vast majority of times it's like this event where we moved into a moldy property and then that's what got us ill. It can happen, but it's, in my experience, quite rare that you have such a crystal clear case of this is what's gone on. Mm. Because we also know that our current physiological state at the time of exposure partly dictates how we're going to respond to the exposure, which kind of obviously to some degree is common sense. So the our nutrient status, our toxic load at the time. Our microbiome, we know that the the microbiome is a way to kind of sequester and detox these mycotoxins. So if we already have a compromised microbiome, we're more at risk. Mm. Um, Some people talk about genetic predispositions. So there are kind of different camps in the mycotoxin world. You've got kind of Dr. Richie Shoemaker, who talks about 25% of the population having a genetic predisposition to not being able to detox Um, And then Dr. Neil Nathan, who's done some of that testing, he'll say that he hasn't really noticed that correlation. So there may be a bit of a genetic predisposition, but fundamentally, if you're not able to detox very well, um, especially through some of the pathways Mm. that we detox mycotoxins, or if your biliary system is compromised and that bile's become quite sluggish, those are all the things we need to be working efficiently to be able to detox mycotoxins efficiently Mm. so there's that kind of big element to this as well and obviously our health is just as a population is not what it once was yeah so that's why certainly in my case it would explain why um my husband doesn't suffer from any of because i think it's quite easy for people these days to say isn't it like if you live together and one person's ill and you know, that one person that's, that's ill has done their research and they're thinking, or oh, maybe it's because we've got mould or maybe it's because we live in a damp property. And then for the other person to say, well, I'm fine, so it must, it can't mm. be that. But it makes so much sense that, you know, it's your inherent, your, your own detoxing capability. I think when I picked up a, I'm just, I'm preempting what my test results are going to say, basically. <laughs> I think when this became an issue for me is when uh, we lived in Sydney and I um, pulled a, 
visibly mouldy. I just I shudder to think about this now. A visibly mouldy chest of drawers in off the street from a garage sale and put it in our bedroom for the year that we were living in Sydney. Um, and I was already dealing with SIBO at the time. You know, my health was really bad anyway, and then got significantly much worse. Nick, on the other hand, absolutely fine. So that is that is very interesting. And I think it, it's important for people to realise that um, we're not all, unfortunately, we're not all equal in, in this. No. It's not I mean, a level I... playing field. Exactly. And, and how things manifest can just be wildly different. So... You know, Katie and I, my wife, in our last property, um, before she actually moved in, there was a leak. Um, and basically, and this was a time where I didn't know much about mould. And they, a builder came in, they kind of made a hole in the kitchen ceiling, the bathroom was above, let it dry out, and then just plastered over it. So it's like, I look back now and I go, oh. <laughs> mm. And then, you know, we we definitely had an issue there. Katie picked up the most horrendous cough. Like it was just 24-7. It was the most crazy thing I've heard, I guess, ultimately. Mm. Um, whereas I developed some quite bad anxiety issues. I developed sort of psoriasis um, and eczema type symptoms. Um, so we just, we manifested very different symptoms. And at the time, we to be honest, we just did not connect the dots that that's probably what was going on. But looking back from now, especially having had a good sort of three years of experience working with mycotoxins and moldy clients, it's like that definitely was what was going on. Mm. Um, interestingly, also, the other thing looking back is I used to feel horrendous sometimes after my morning coffee but I love coffee. <laughs> so I kind of persevered through it. And looking back now, I'm like, I wonder whether that was a mycotoxin contaminated coffee. Cause I really did feel terrible. Yeah. Um, and I really don't anymore. We live in a different property. I obviously now am more careful on the coffee that I choose and things like this. Um, but it's worth highlighting that a lot of the research at the moment out there is on mycotoxins and how they've contaminated our food supply. There isn't as much research, almost none, from a human health water damage building perspective. We've got some right. case studies that have been published and things like this, but a lot of it comes from either animal research or now the leading clinicians who are seeing obviously hundreds, if not thousands of clients, and they've they've learned what works. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I love Dr. Krista, because she's very honest in, she, in the way she says, this is my theory about some of what's going on. Um, I'm happy to be wrong, but what I do know is the treatment works. Yeah. Um, and that's all that matters right now, yeah. ultimately. Yeah. Right. Hi. Let's talk about coffee, everyone's fave. I've already spoiled your morning Oatly flat white, but the coffee-related news I have to share with you today is really positive. Launched in lockdown 2020, Exhale is the UK's first speciality coffee to be sourced and roasted specifically to maximise its positive health impacts. We know that coffee has really great associated health benefits, and this has to do with its polyphenol content, that's plant chemicals to you and I. Polyphenols are found in fruits and veggies, blueberries, green tea, etc., and are important for maintaining good gut health and nutrient levels within the body. So why are all coffees not created equally? Firstly, coffee is a really hard crop to grow and for that reason most companies choose to spray their crops with pesticides to get a higher yield. Those pesticides then aren't those pesticides then end up in your flat white, which is not particularly helpful. 
Exhale Coffee is organic and their decaf uses the water pressure method to gently extract the caffeine from the beans, so no nasty chemicals there either. Exhale's journey to finding the best beans involved nine rounds of lab testing at independent labs across Europe, and they then found a coffee that tested 40% higher in polyphenols, specifically chlorogenic acid, than any other in an online list of 45. It is one of the richest sources of niacin in our diets and is free from any nasties including mycotoxins, pesticides, other toxins and heavy metals. One of the coolest things, I think, is that Exhale tested their coffee's antioxidant power and compared it to some of the healthiest foods available in the supermarket. One cup of Exhale coffee had the equivalent antioxidant power of 12 punnets of blueberries, 55 oranges or 1.8 kilograms of kale. And aside from all of this, it's the tastiest coffee I've ever brewed. If you would like to set up a coffee delivery subscription, just head over to their website and use the code GRACE40, which will give you 40% off the first bag in your subscription plus free delivery. They roast and grind every Monday and post your order on a Tuesday, so it's always super fresh. Thank you so much to Exhale. So the food uh, element is the next thing I wanted to ask you about, because when you, when you say mold, I think your initial thought for the average person is, you know, you've got a loaf of bread, you've left it out for too long, it's got mouldy. Um, is that the same as uh, the mould that we've been talking about? And where in our food supply are we seeing the worst uh, mould contamination? You spoke about coffee, but I also there's also a few other things that I think are worth mentioning. Mm. So it's a good question. I have to say I'm there's going to be an overlap, but there's probably a difference at the same time. So like you say, not all moulds are kind of toxic. They're not all producing mycotoxins. There are hundreds of known mycotoxins, and I don't think all of them are toxic, um, or they certainly have different levels of toxicity. And there's research showing us that sometimes these mycotoxins, it's not like one plus one equals two. So if you're being exposed to more than one, it again is kind of like a there's a compounding sort of situation that goes on. But um, coffee, peanut butter, quite a few of the grains. So many people will have just died inside while you said peanut I know. butter. I myself I know. too. Like I know this, but I still quite occasionally do love some peanut butter. Well, it's it's a delicious butter. Um, so yeah, you know, there are some really common things. Dried nuts, dried fruit, well, nuts, dried fruit. Um, certain dairy products. It's been found in breast milk. So we we know or suspect it can be passed on, which isn't too surprising. Um, but grains, herbs and spices, supplements. It, there was a study that showed milk thistle was the most contaminated herbal product, which is rather ironic. Mm -hmm. So this, again, is why we have to just be so careful with our brands that we choose ultimately um, and trying to really pick ones that we trust that hopefully are kind of independently tested and validated and things like this. Mm. So it's, it is a problem in the in the food supply chain. And, and when I came across all of that research, my first question was like, does this re relate to us, you know, in the UK and the US? Because a lot of those studies, it has to be said, are done in sort of developing worlds, where again, if we go back to this idea of how resilient is our health, it's a really horrible, it's like a double whammy for them because they're already... 
um, going to have to some degree compromised health often. And that makes them arguably more susceptible to then being exposure to contaminated food produce. Mm. But the there are kind of government organisations that have said that 25% of the grain crops in the UK are susceptible to mycotoxins. So it is something which is like in the UK food supply. It's not like uh, people in the developed world don't have this problem either. And I think we'd have to be mindful, but not fearful about it. Because I, again, going back to trying to be a little bit conservative about it, I think if you're in really good health, you you will be able to get away with it. You know, if you've got a really diverse, resilient microbiome, if those detox pathways are working effectively, etc., then the bit of mycotoxins you're, you're being exposed to may well be okay because you're able to eradicate it at the rate that you're being exposed to it put simply Mm. Um, I'm sure there are going to be practitioners that disagree with that because obviously all of these things are accumulative so if you're having mycotoxin contaminated food every day over 50 years could that be a factor and I would say it it could be but I'm not going to say categorically that it is Mm. Um, because if we're doing enough to support ourselves in this toxic world then what's the the point in worrying ultimately we can yeah. only control what we can control yeah um so i think we've got to be careful with how far we take it if mm. we're not obviously suffering with mycotoxin issues mm. yeah i guess you know the simple thing is to say to people if you you are noticing that you've got some of these unexplained symptoms you have really bad brain fog you're super tired you notice issues with your sleep you've got skin problems your gut is all over the place and you know no one can really help you or do anything about it and then also you think oh maybe it's because my property's moldy or water damaged or I eat peanut butter for breakfast lunch and dinner then it's potentially worth looking into isn't it yeah I mean what I will say is a lot of my clients um have had chronic GI issues And all the typical programs, interventions that often work haven't been working or they've been only working. But as soon as they stop them, they kind of relapse. And in 99% of them, with no exaggeration, they've had quite um, positive mycotoxin tests. And most of them have had known exposure to mould, i.e. it's been visible in their property. Mm. But it's a tricky one because um, it doesn't have to obviously be visible. Um, it could be related to a neighbor's property. If you're in an attached property, for example, it could just be in the wall. I had mm-hmm. a client where where they worked with me for a couple of years with IBS type stuff. We got them better. Two years later, they called me out the blue um, with chronic fatigue type issues. They started to refurb the kitchen, pulled down the wallpaper and there was just mold everywhere. Oh. So it might be behind wallpaper. Yeah. Um, and also for whatever reason, they can stay contained. So sometimes you pull a bookcase off the wall, which has been there for three years without you touching it, and suddenly you see mould on the back of the bookcase. Mm. So there's some very simple things that you can do sometimes, which is just look behind your furniture to make sure there's nothing going on. Um, So it's a really tricky one. So I kind of, I word it in like, you know, do, uh, do you know you've been exposed? Because it's very possible you don't know you've been exposed. Yeah, which is why it's quite a terrifying topic. So on to kind of a more positive positive slant. Um, Is there, I mean, what is the treatment, if any? Like, what can we do um, as individuals to to help ourselves? Um, So the first one is obviously, if you are in a property, in the ideal scenario, you leave that property 
And I appreciate that's just not practical or possible the majority of times. But it needs to be said because people need to be aware that at some point, unless they've got the money to do a proper remediation of the property, um, they need to get out to the be- to the best they can. So I've had one client who literally camped in their garden because they, it was just so clear to them. As soon as they entered the house, their symptoms massively flared up and they mm-hmm. had visible moulds that would very quickly get onto their clothing, for example. It was just a yeah. really bad property. Um, I've had another client in a rented property where literally a mushroom grew in the bathroom. Um, It was just that problematic. Um, So we need to try and get out. If we can't get out, then we need to try and improve the air quality to the best of our ability. So air purifiers, dehumidifiers, air purifying plants, keeping the windows open if that's realistic and practical. If there is a clear room that is being exposed, obviously limits are time in that room, keep the door closed and the window open. So we're doing the best we can to kind of ventilate and to improve the air quality. Mm-hmm. So what they're breathing in is is um, low in, I guess, quantity, so to speak, of mycotoxins. Um, then you can start to think really about the fact that we pee, poo and sweat them out. So if there is a mycotoxin burden, we need to start thinking about gut health fundamentally. So we need to ensure we're having a daily bowel movement. We need to try and stay hydrated and we need to try and sweat on a regular basis. And those are obviously the three kind of excretion routes Mm. that can be considered. Um, And what they call sequestering agents or binders is kind of, I guess, the informal term. And that's anything from activated charcoal to bentonite clay. There are some newer products which are kind of carbon-based that um, some people are raving about um, that all, put very simply, help bind and mop up some of those toxins within the GI tract, certainly, but some of them also systemically, the newer binders as well. Mm. Um, And obviously, you've got this whole idea of enterohepatic recirculation. So this is partly the biliary system that becomes so important. So but again, put quite simply, we the liver detoxifies certain toxins and compounds and that process is adding stuff to the toxin. That then gets dumped into our bile and the bile enters the small intestine. And then 98% of those bile acids or something like that get recirculated. And that's kind of this enterohepatic recirculation. So I do this in consults. I have my hands <laughs> moving like yeah. this. I talk about how our binders are coming in that we're supplementing. And they're helping bind some of those toxins that have been dumped into the intestine and then drawing them into, well, further down the digestive tract so we can then poop them out, mm. leaving healthier bile to then go through that uh, enterohepatic cycle. Yeah. So that's one of the ways that binders can be so helpful. And there is a case study apparently that got um, sort of presented at a conference where binders alone were enough to, I'm pretty sure from memory I'm right in saying, reverse a diagnosis of autism in a child. And they showed pictures of like this kid's handwriting over a six month period. And it was just incredible. Mm. Um, Most people will say binders aren't enough um, to deal with mycotoxins. Mm. And and I guess the way to think about it is there's no need to not do some of the other things ultimately. But we also, it's nice to know that we don't need to kind of go 
gung-ho with all of our supplements to try and help someone because obviously if we're mobilizing toxins quicker than we can eliminate them anyway Mm -hmm. that means we often will feel worse Mm -hmm. um, which is the last thing we want and certainly not something that we need to experience to get well yeah so binders are often the first part of people's protocol especially after getting people out the property if that's possible and then Interestingly, most people actually, including Dr. Krista, will say kind of gut health is important. So probiotics, getting lots of polyphenols into the diet, which have some degree of prebiotic properties to them as well, um, is really important because nourishing that microbiome obviously influences detox. It will support the immune system. It helps modulate some of the immune cells involved in all of this, like Treg cells, for example. So that fiber in the diets can be really helpful if tolerated as part of this but Mm. i've kind of found the opposite which is you can't most of my clients find they can't heal the gut until they've dealt with at least some of the burden of the mycotoxins yeah so a few Um, weeks of binders first and then going in with all the polyphenols and the fats and the color and And then antifungals are often going to be beneficial so whether that's things like oregano oil or thyme um there are others as well. Rosemary extract could be used. Turmeric, alpha-lipoic acid as antioxidants to start doing some of the repair work because obviously there's can be a huge amount of oxidative stress going on and inflammation as a result of the immune response to some of these mycotoxins as mm. well. Um, so there's a lot of tools in the toolkit and it's kind of working through those to some degree. But thinking about the gut, thinking about detoxification and the biliary system, Um, are really important and antioxidants can be a really important part of that Mm. Um, and then obviously just things to support the immune system so Dr Karazian will mention things like just like vitamin A and vitamin D as ways to modulate again things like Treg cells and to help the immune system come back into balance as you do lighten the burden of that toxicity yeah Um, bearing in mind that you know a lot of people with mold or mycotoxin issues will have other stuff going on as well. So there will be some um, chronic GI issues more times than not, in my experience. There will be oxidative stress. It can contribute to uh, endocrine issues and the list goes on. So sometimes it's it's important to appreciate that the mycotoxin part of treatment is what only one chapter anyway. Yeah. For some people, best case scenario easiest scenario it's the chapter but normally as anyone with chronic illness knows you know you go through different chapters of that journey where you might do more gut-centric stuff and then more detox stuff etc um so you need to think about it as a staggered sequential kind of process sometimes i think Mm. Um, and dr krista talks about these um fats as well doesn't she what is it clean copious basically just loads of fats in the diet because of the yeah. fact that these uh, mycotoxins are fat soluble yeah so she has this idea of kind of diluting the toxins that's it um yeah. so she is a big fan of high dose um of fats omega-3s and things like this um because obviously things like the cell membranes and the mitochondrial membranes etc are partly made up of fats they're kind of fatty layers Um, And I think I asked her about this. I certainly asked Dr. Shippy about it, who's also another kind of a mold literate practitioner. And obviously NT factor, which is a supplement, may be really interesting as something here because that has been specifically designed to help reestablish and rebuild healthy um, bilayers to the membranes in the inner mitochondrial membrane. So that may be actually quite an appropriate supplement for people with mycotoxin issues because it's 
aligning with this idea of diluting the toxins, but also obviously there are clinical studies showing that it improves fatigue. So in someone who's got mycotoxins and chronic fatigue, some of my clients have responded really well to that product. Yeah. Okay. So bottom line for people that are listening, go and be a, a, a detective around your home, you know, see if you can see any visible mold to begin with. Um, I think it's probably number one. Um, don't, whatever you do, rip it out with no mask, no gloves, you know, no protection, windows closed. Um, and maybe maybe seek advice because there are companies, aren't there, that will come and um, sort out your home for yeah. you if you find really bad mould. Exactly. There are loads around the country that you can sort of investigate. I mean, the only one I have personal experience with is building forensics. Mm. Um, I actually, I always forget his surname. I, I need to remember it, but he's Jeff. Okay. <laughs> Jeff is the, <laughs> Jeff is the <laughs> owner. Um, he's presented to governments on this stuff. Like he really is kind of leading the way in, in, in my eyes on some of this stuff. Um, so, and I say that only because that's the company I have personal experience with, but there are, there around the country, um, companies that can come in and do these kind of investigations for you. And then obviously just quickly, there's the ERMI test. It is in the U S so it has to get posted over to us, but that's like an easy way to think about it is a kind of Petri like dish test that you put around your home, um, send the samples back to the lab and they will tell you, um, what sorts of molds are present, Mm. um, after you've collected them. So Mm. that's another kind of at home evaluation Mm. that you can do. And then obviously from a body perspective, you've got urine tests that will look at the amount of mycotoxins in the urine. You can do the visual contrast test, um, which is an online, super cheap, something like $14 test that will give you an indication of if there's any inflammation of the optic nerve. Yeah. It's not specific for mycotoxins. Um, I don't use it partly for that. Um, it's not really telling you what's driving that inflammation, but there are a lot of much cleverer people than I that will use it as part of their overall um, investigation, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And if and Dr. Crystal will kind of say, if that comes back positive, it may give you an indication of how deep those mycotoxins have penetrated, so to speak. Mm. You know, it's got into that kind of nervous system and into the optic nerve and it's influencing vision ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so to round things up, um, I guess I just want to get across to people how important this is. And, you know, in your professional experience, I know that these days it's quite rare for you to see a patient that doesn't have some sort of issue with mold and mycotoxins. And I guess the message is for people that if you do have, um, you know, any of the symptoms that Alex listed, so uh, remind me because I might forget, but the kind of digestive side of things, anything fungal or on the skin, uh, neurological, so like anxiety, we're talking about depression as well and that sort of side. Anxiety, depression, there are two papers on multiple sclerosis. Um, so really, I mean, it it kind of just goes on and on. Most, most of the main bodily systems can be impacted. So iron deficiency anemia can be seen in people with mycotoxin issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, and that's where the challenge is. It's kind of saying, okay, well, it's something that needs to be considered. And then you start digging into that person's health history and their timeline to understand, is there anything else that is think, making us think this is the path that we need to go down with our investigation, basically? Yeah. Um, because obviously budget comes into it as well. But if there's known mould exposure and their health journey started while in that property and they don't want to test for whatever reason, 
then you've got a pretty good argument to say, look, let's just start some treatment, see how you respond and yeah. then go from there because that's kind of going to be the best evidence anyway. Yeah. Um, so there are different ways to do it. And there's certainly a conversation to be had around, you know, what is possible for us to do? What, How confident can we be that this is what's going on? And also just be mindful that I'm slightly concerned and I'm probably partly to blame here that people are going to think mold is like this this magic answer to their problems and it can be or as we've been discussing and you brought up grace um it can be a, a factor there can be yeah. other things going on and that's why this idea of the functional medicine timeline i think is such a powerful mm. clinical tool mm. yeah definitely definitely okay let's leave it there i think that's probably given people a lot to think about um do reach out to alex or myself if you've got further questions um alex you also have a podcast would you like to tell us about that so that people can find you yeah so it's the health path podcast these days um and i guess somewhat similar to yours grace i mean i get sort of practitioners in sort of the functional medicine space um and the health space on um to explore different topics so at the moment it's been somewhat gut centric we've had the likes of Dr C Becker and Dr Jacoby and Dr Sandberg Lewis coming on and sharing their brains um but there are there are episodes on breath work there's an episode I think on the health path on psychedelics and the role that they can play within our healing journeys so yeah if that sounds interesting head over it's on YouTube it's on iTunes it's on most of the kind of the podcast provider platforms amazing great Thank you so much, Alex. This has been uh, scary, but useful, I think I'm going to go with. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad it's useful and not just scary. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Grace. Thank you so much for tuning in to State of Mind. If you haven't already left a review on the Apple Podcast app, then do please head over and pop a five stars down. Don't forget to head over to exhalecoffee.com for your 40% discount and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.